previously on Chillingworth. Joe Peel was one of the few remaining judges in Palm Beach County. Then in 1952, the entire population of West Palm Beach saw his morals called into question. Judge Chillingworth presided over the malpractice case against Joe. Chillingworth suspended Joe from practicing for two months. And Judge Chillingworth warned Joe that if he committed malpractice again, he would be disbarred. Not long after Joe's suspension, a lanky, handsome veteran showed up at his office in the Harvey Building. His name was Floyd Holzapple. On December 1st, 1954, Dwight Rogers, who was the U.S. representative for West Palm Beach and Palm Beach County, passed away. So Paul Rogers filed to run for U.S. representative to replace his father. Joe didn't think he could defeat him in a fair election. So he figured his only way to win the seat was to simply whack his opponent. He didn't know you. You had never seen this man in my fucking life until that night. Oh, good. I run his death. That old son of a bitch was here, a nasty bastard, right? Hi, I'm John Moss. And I'm Jonathan Payne. Welcome to Chillingworth. By the end of the summer of 1955, people all around the world had heard about the disappearance of Judge Curtis Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie. Even with the slow burn of television news and newspaper reports in the 1950s, this story spread like wildfire. This was the most notorious crime in Florida's history. Everyone knew about the case and had some theory about what had happened to the Chillingworths. The Miami News even ran a contest for its readers that offered a prize to whoever submitted the most compelling solution to the mystery. Two years earlier, Judge Chillingworth was anticipating the upcoming election for the open seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. Judge Chillingworth and everyone else in Palm Beach County expected gifted young attorney Paul Rogers to waltz into office. Everyone except for Joe Peel, who planned to have Rogers murdered long before anyone could cast a ballot for him. From the day he met him in 1953, Floyd Holzapple, who had served time for armed robbery, revered his new friend, Judge Joe Peel, city magistrate of West Palm Beach. Joe was the man he sought out all of his life, the man who could offer him a way to escape the marginalized world he'd been mired in since he was a child in Oklahoma. Floyd, in turn, was willing to do anything for Judge Peel as he pursued his dreams of becoming state attorney and eventually governor of Florida. That is until Joe asked Floyd to kill Paul Rogers, his rival in the upcoming race for U.S. Congress. At this stage of their relationship, as far as Joe knew, Floyd had never before committed murder. But Joe was so confident that Floyd would do it, he chartered a plane to fly to Tallahassee so he could file as a candidate, even before he'd spoken with Floyd about the job. 
How did Joe get the sense that Floyd would kill Paul Rogers? Floyd had bragged to Joe that it never bothered him in the least when he blew away a German in North Africa or Italy. I got conscience as far as my friends are concerned, but man, if you bring me in that stranger, I'll treat him the same way I treated a German in the time I will get Sicily. So Joe figured that he'd be willing to kill in a peacetime setting under the right circumstances. Floyd was one of only two people I've ever met that I would say I could categorize as a stone cold killer. I believe Floyd could look at you right across the table, smile at you, and pull the trigger on you. Something about the eyes, I guess. That was Terry Fernell, an attorney who knew Floyd well. Fortunately for Paul Rogers, Floyd dissuaded Joe from knocking off his political opponent. Floyd advised Joe that government by assassination might win you a couple of elections, but it would catch up with you eventually. Which saved Paul Rogers' life. And he went on to be elected to fill the seat his dad had held. Floyd didn't approve of Joe's plot to kill Rogers, but this didn't lead Floyd to distance himself from Joe. Their bond actually deepened in the months that followed. It was a friendship that coincided with the erosion of whatever moral fiber Joe still had. Mimi Mursky, Joe and Imogene Peel's gracious neighbor, became aware that in the early 50s, Joe was routinely ushering comely young women into his home late at night while his wife was away. Joe continued his brazen philandering until Mimi's husband revealed to him that everybody on the block, including some kids, had noticed what he was up to. Mimi didn't realize that sneaking girlfriends into his home was actually pedestrian compared to another dimension of Joe's infidelity. Joe seduced a female client while he was representing her in a divorce case. He swore to that woman that he loved her and planned to leave Imogene so he could marry her. He never did. Joe managed to persuade this soon-to-be-scorned lover to pose for photos, stark naked, in his office in the Harvey Building. Kind of a dog, right? Well, he did the exact same thing with four other women. Joe was prudent enough not to take the negatives to a commercial Photoshop to be developed and printed. So he asked the West Palm Beach Police Department's photo lab manager, a friend of his, to process the film and to give only him the prints. What were these photos like? Let's just say that Joe didn't have a very good eye. We don't know who was aware of these poorly composed pictures other than Joe's friend and confidant in the police photo lab. But they would have revealed a lot about Joe to anyone who did see them. Joe Peel was a guy who obviously, uh, obviously to me, was, he, he was different. He was different from the rest of humanity. He was, what we, I think, what we call amoral. He didn't make decisions based on what was right or wrong. He was a bad guy. Joe Peel was a bad guy. At some point, Joe realized that he hadn't capitalized on the opportunities that being city magistrate gave him in terms of draining money from the public for his own gain and for Floyd's gain. So the two of them came up with this bribery scheme which essentially involved Joe as city magistrate shaking down racketeers 
numbers or Bolita racketeers and moonshiners. And he was in a perfect position to do that because all the warrants had to go through Joe's office. Right, the city of West Palm Beach Police Department's warrants. So anytime the police department was planning a raid on an, an illegal gambling operation, a Bolita operation or a moonshine operation, the police had to go to Joe who would then issue a warrant. And so what Joe wanted to offer the racketeers was a tip, information that they were going to be raided the next day, which was very valuable. Joe knew that the deal would appeal to any sensible racketeer, most of whom were black. And as we mentioned before, Bolita and Moonshine were extremely popular in the black communities. And those communities made up about 25% of Palm Beach County's population. And even though the average income wasn't that high, it was a lot of buying power collectively. And that's where a lot of money went to those rackets. The only thing missing from the plan was an entree into the black neighborhoods. They had to find the most influential racketeer. It was easy to spot who the big boy in the black community. That wasn't hard. I mean, you could be Ray Charles, a blind man could see that. That was Dan Calloway, a friend of a man named Bobby Lincoln. Bobby Lincoln was the liaison to the black racketeers that Joe and Floyd needed. And Lucky Hosea was probably introducing to Judge uh, Peel because uh, Judge Peel wouldn't have come out here and hunt Bobby, Bobby Lincoln down. Floyd asked a black friend of his, a man called Red Cat, who Floyd had worked with at the power company. If he'd introduce Floyd to Bobby, Redcap agreed. I would say Bobby was pretty, a uh, pretty relaxed black man. Yeah, around whites. That was Zell Davis, an attorney who spent a lot of time with Bobby. Bobby's suitability for their scheme was way beyond what either Joe or Floyd imagined it could be. Bobby was a very intelligent, very composed, very dignified, if you can call a racketeer, dignified young man who didn't have to rely on brutality to get his way. Bobby was born in a small town in North Florida, but his family moved down to Riviera Beach when he was very young, maybe six or eight years old. Everyone in his family was a very devout Christian. They were prominent people in his church. He served in the Navy and he was stationed in San Diego, but he never saw combat. He was snazzy dressed, low, wasn't loud, everybody loved him. He was untutored, but he was profoundly intelligent. Where most people want to flaunt uh, their power, Bobby didn't do that. He never yelled and, and was frightening to people. Although he was well put together, he was ripped, as they called it. Bobby Lincoln already had a good thing going before Floyd appeared and presented Joe's proposal. He had quite the diversified portfolio. An extensive Bolita operation, taxi cabs, a pool hall, and he even had a mom and pop brothel. It was housed in a little four-room bungalow behind his home. But Bolita was Bobby's principal source of income. Well, Bolita is a, is a Spanish word, the little ball. They had what they call a night house. The number was thrown every night. You could bet on the number. More tickets they sold. Uh, more uh, 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 bow leader they sold, the more money they made. They got a percentage out of that. The less people catch the number, the more they, the housemate, that said number two come out, and nobody had two. So all the money they sold is clear money for them. That was a lucrative deal. He was quite an entrepreneur. 
and he was doing incredibly well without the introduction of these two new characters into his life. He was ambitious. Somebody like that would naturally value the chance to ally himself with a powerful city magistrate like Joe Peel and would appreciate the possibilities of expanding his horizons that offered as great as things were going for him at the time. Or he may have looked at his options and realized he had no choice. So the meeting was finally set. Joe, Bobby, and Floyd met in downtown West Palm Beach at Joe's office in the Harvey Building. And in this meeting, Joe, Floyd, and Bobby discussed the terms of the offer that Bobby would make on behalf of Joe and Floyd to the moonshiners and Belita operators in West Palm Beach and also in Riviera Beach. The deal that Bobby was going to propose was very straightforward. The racketeers would pay Bobby every Monday morning. He would then turn the money over to Floyd, who would then give it to Joe to be divided amongst the three partners. Bobby agreed to the plan. And he went back and he looked up all of his friends, rivals, and colleagues in the underworld and managed to convince dozens of them to participate in the scheme. So before too long, they're paying Bobby weekly. Every Monday morning, they'd give Bobby their bribe. It was a cash cow. Yeah, they had the perfect setup. By 1955, Joe's bribery scheme had become a well-oiled machine. They were taking in approximately $1.5 million a year in today's money. While they were conducting this illicit scheme, Floyd and Bobby became very close friends, and they got to know each other's wives and kids. They would go spearfishing together on the reefs off of Palm Beach. They'd hunt together. Floyd's wife, Peggy, who came from Georgia, would fix Bobby traditional Southern supper in their home. Joe was never openly accused of running the scheme, but some people in town suspected that he was shaking the racketeers down. Emery Newell, who was an attorney in the mid-50s, seemed to think so. The rumor around town was that the police were going out to serve a warrant on somebody for, uh, for being involved in gambling, that uh, Judge Peel would give him a phone call and give him time to get away. That was pretty well known among the lawyers, I think, at that time. So did Sheriff's Deputy Ralph Clark. Mac was uh, my informant I had in Bill Glade. He came to me and told me that they already knew we were about to raid and we were going to pull off. I said, how'd they find out? And he said, well, uh, Judge Peel signs the search warrants. And as soon as he signs the search warrants, he calls Bobby Lincoln. Bobby Lincoln informs us to call it off. And he said, that's why you're not finding anything out there. But there were many reasons that no one came after Judge Peel, even though some lawyers clearly knew about the scheme. Whatever these suspicions were, law enforcement, the city of West Palm Beach Police Department, or the Sheriff's Department would have had to find racketeers who were willing to say on the record that they were paying bribes to Joe Peel, just like it would have been such an ordeal to bring Sheriff Kirk down for taking bribes. Joe knew that all of this meant that even if some people suspected he'd been exploiting his position on the bench to siphon money from racketeers, it was unlikely that anyone would come after him. And so Joe felt how he should have felt, practically untouchable. 
Joe eventually became so consumed with what was going on with the bribery scheme that he lost sight of his responsibilities as an attorney. As a result, he ended up committing malpractice in a divorce case again, and he was served with another complaint. Joe had told a female client that her divorce had been finalized when in fact it hadn't, and she'd remarried, which made her technically a bigamist. Joe was hoping and praying that Judge White, the other circuit court judge and family friend, took on the case because he believed Judge White would go easy on him. But it wasn't to be. Judge Chillingworth was the one who was going to preside over the hearing. Joe heard that Chillingworth was determined to have him disbarred. He wasn't going to be lenient this time. So Joe is facing impending doom. He's awaiting the date of his hearing before Judge Chillingworth with utter dread, trying to figure out a way to escape his fate. He realized that the only way out of it was to have the case somehow reassigned to Judge White. As we know, Joe's willing to go to extreme lengths to get what he wants. We know that from his plot to kill Paul Rogers in order to ensure that he'd win the US Congress seat. And that line of thinking made a lot of sense to him again now that he was facing his showdown with Judge Chillingworth in the courtroom. So he decided that Judge Chillingworth had to die. This is an excerpt from Judge Chillingworth's diary of 1936. Sheriff High Lawrence came to my office today. He told me that most of his friends, most of the town's leaders, wanted the Belita business and the moonshiners to be left alone. He said they were paying a lot of money to be left alone. And he asked me if I would also leave them alone. I told Sheriff Lawrence that I thought he was a good man but I couldn't go along with what he was asking me to do. I wouldn't just leave them alone. Joe set up a meeting with Floyd, the person he trusted most to carry out his plan. He explained to Floyd the position he was in and that their only course of action was to kill Judge Chillingworth. Again, Floyd objected to the idea and tried to talk Joe out of it. I argued with him for three days. It was unnecessary. Get the fraud. Don't get the judge. What the fuck you need the judge for? Floyd reasoned that if Joe's former client somehow died, the malpractice suit would die with her. But Joe apparently thought that that would arouse too much suspicion. Or maybe he just wanted to kill Judge Chillingworth because Chillingworth represented some kind of existential threat to a man like Joe. The stakes were a lot higher than they were before in the case of Paul Rogers. This time, Joe's burgeoning empire was going to crumble if they didn't commit the crime. That meant Floyd's world was going to come crashing down too. So they met a few more times to talk over their options. And Joe insisted Chillingworth had to go. Eventually, Floyd relented. But both Floyd and Joe knew they should have another man with them on the job. So Floyd called his friend, Bobby Lincoln. 
Floyd and Joe drove up to Bobby's house in Riviera Beach, picked him up, and then drove over to Singer Island. They convinced Bobby that they all would be brought down if Chillingworth disbarred Joe. And Bobby reluctantly agreed, very reluctantly agreed, to go along with the plan. Once again, Bobby didn't have any option. If he didn't go along with it, they were going to kill the judge anyway. And as close as the three of them had become, Bobby's own life or his family's security would be endangered if he was the only guy out there who knew that Joe and Floyd had killed Judge Chillingworth. Joe concocted a method of killing the judge. It wasn't very elaborate. They would simply drive up to the Chillingworth's isolated beach house in Manalapan, knock on the door, and fire two shells into the judge when he answered. He has an idea of a cowboy job, a double barrel shotgun, I But Floyd wanted to try another approach. He was inspired by the Ferry murder in Miami where Mr. and Mrs. Ferry had been abducted and taken out to sea just a few months before. Floyd believed that this approach to killing Judge Chillingworth would ensure that no one would go to jail. The scheme was to take a boat out into the Atlantic, beach it behind the Chillingworth's Manalapan beach house, abduct the Chillingworths and take them out into the ocean, then throw them overboard alive. To do that, they needed a boat. Floyd had a friend, Bill Tennant, who had a few used boats. He was a marine mechanic. Floyd reached an agreement with Tennant to buy about a 21-foot homemade inboard boat. I bought a boat that I While they waited for Tennant to fix up the boat for delivery, Joe convinced Floyd that in the meantime, they should see if they could pull off the murder as he'd originally planned. So Joe, Floyd, and Bobby arranged to rendezvous and drive down to Manalapan together a few nights later to kill Judge Chillingworth, just like that. While they were in Manalapan, they were able to study Judge Chillingworth's schedule, his bedtime, whether he entertained guests at the beach house, and he actually did have people over. That's right, my mom and dad had dinner at their beach house the week before their abduction. On June 13th, Bill Tennant called Floyd and told him that the boat was seaworthy and ready for its maiden voyage. Tennant took Floyd out for a shakedown cruise, I guess you would call it, to teach him how to operate the boat, including, at Floyd's request, a short lesson on how to beach the boat with the motor running without taking in sand in the engine. The next day, Floyd went shopping at a hardware store and also a, an army surplus store and picked up a variety of items that he planned to take down to the Chillingworth's house, including diver's weights, ammunition belts, rolls of adhesive tape, and a clothesline. Floyd also met with Joe to discuss the steps they would follow after he returned from his moonlight trip to the Chillingworth's house. Joe planned to stay home that evening with Imogene while Floyd and Bobby navigated down to Manalapan. Joe would be tuning in to a new game show that was captivating America. 
the 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. Yes, the $64,000 question. Where knowledge is king and the reward king size. Joe would be able to describe details of the program to establish an alibi for the evening. To establish that he was at home glued to the television on the night of June 14, 1955. And tonight, Revlon brings you a fabulous announcement. So around 8.45 that night, when Bobby got home, Floyd picked him up in Riviera Beach. He told Bobby he needed help with a job. They drove a few miles to the Riviera Beach Marina. Floyd ran across the street to the Blue Heron Bar and bought a bottle of Old Grandad, and then Floyd tossed his sack full of tools, shotguns, and pistols into the boat. He and Bobby boarded and headed out of the Palm Beach Inlet into the Atlantic. Thank you and good evening, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm really looking forward to tonight's show, so if you don't mind, let's get going. Floyd navigated south at about four knots. He wanted to arrive in Manalapan around midnight. They cruised along offshore of the town of Palm Beach, where undoubtedly all but a few residents were sleeping. So here was Bobby on this boat. Floyd was sipping away at the pint of old granddad, talking about diving spots along the reef and Bobby, who was very reluctant to participate in the murder of Judge Chillingworth, may have been hoping that they wouldn't actually commit the crime after they'd backed away from the house a couple of times. But at some stage, along the way down to Manalapan, Bobby came to terms with that reality. Neither one of them really wanted to commit this crime. They were doing it because Joe had asked them to. Floyd didn't want to draw attention to the boat, so he was puttering along nor did he want to get there too early. Finally, around midnight, Bobby noticed that Floyd was turning towards shore. They'd reached Manalapan. Here it is, Wilton, your $4,000 question. Bobby, somebody who'd most likely never committed a violent crime, let alone a murder, didn't see any options. He's looking down silently at the canvas sack on the deck as Floyd keeps talking about spearfishing. And he knows at this point, the sack is full of the accoutrements of abduction and murder. You have 30 seconds, good luck. The boat reaches the point off of Manalapan where Floyd can see the Chillingworth Beach House. It's easy to spot because it sits at a point where the road that runs through Manalapan, A1A, jogs to the east and then runs right along the ocean to the south. There are very few lights on in the sparsely populated town. And the Chillingworth's place was 100 yards from the closest house. Floyd beached the boat and kept the motor running. All right, well, the time is up. Let's go to picture number one. What place Floyd and Bobby hopped overboard onto the beach carrying the supplies Floyd had brought along. They traipsed up the beach, then up a flight of wooden steps to the top of a sand dune. That's correct. Now picture number two. Floyd asked Bobby to wait at the bottom of another staircase leading to the beach house deck. That is correct. Picture Floyd headed up the stairs, across the deck, and rang the Chillingworth doorbell. Right, just one more now for 8,000. A few moments later, a man answered. 
wearing his pajamas. You're right for $8,000. Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sykowski, and Brad Bernstein. Thank you.